0: Thank you for joining us for
1: another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Robert Kilpatrick, and I'm the chair of the Health and Medicine Member-led Forum here at the club. I'm really delighted to introduce today a program in our Healthy Society series called Communicating Science in a Science-Skeptical World. What a day it's been. We have a new administration in Washington, D.C. that is overtly committed to science. As President Biden has said, science will always be at the forefront of my communication. And as they say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. He has created a new cabinet position, chief science advisor, and appointed Dr. Eric Lander. And he's also retaining National Institutes of Health director, Dr. Francis Collins. There's a whole series of scientists that are lining up to help this administration put science at the center of policy. So we have two distinguished guests today. We're going to talk about this topic. Jeremy Abbott is the vice president and publisher of Scientific American, which is 175 years old, continuous and sustained publication, bringing science topics to the public And he's joined by Melinda Wenner Moyer, a contributing editor to Scientific American, an award winning science writer, and author of a new book entitled How to Raise Kids That Aren't A Holes. So without further ado, I pass the baton over to Jeremy and to Melinda for an enticing conversation. And don't forget, audience, text in your questions and we'll do our best to deal with them. Jeremy. Melinda, welcome thank you Robert uh, i'll start
2: off and then bring in Melinda. i'm not officially the moderator I'm kind of a uh, lead facilitator, and we'll we'll self moderate melinda I, I don't think there's any year more emblematic of the need and the challenge for good scientific communications, and I think it is a uh, Quite serendipitous that it is today we have this discussion when we are seeing uh, a, luckily today, a peaceful transfer of power to, as Robert said, a new administration with an agenda to be honest and to embrace science and facts. I um, can't imagine a time when the world needed scientific information that was vetted. And sound more than this year, so I kind of want to start out with, you know, why is this so important now? And when we think about science communication, and the other side of this is in a science skeptical world, you know, there's a few different kinds of science communication. There's what you do as a journalist. You're kind of the lead intermediary between what what scientists should be communicating and what the public sometimes wants to know about, but also needs to know about. And then there's, of course, why is the world so science skeptical? Some of it is anecdotal. Some of it, there is, you know, studies that will show about our acceptance of facts uh, that depressing in some ways. And so I've got my theories about this, and I will kind of go into them a little bit in a moment. But, you know, you are in the forefront of, of communicating to the public the most critical issues around science and health. Some of them have been in the pages of Scientific American. Some have been op-eds in the New York Times. Some of them, you know, I, I look forward to your very science-driven book. Are, is science journalism more important than ever? It would seem so to me, but I'd love to hear what you think about that.
0: Yes, um, I certainly think so, Jeremy. I have a good friend, actually, who's a science reporter for The New York Times. And I think she's had a front page story, you know, once a week, at least, if not twice a week, three times a week for the past six months. So, I mean, the, the fact is that science right now is the biggest Topic: the biggest story in the world because of the coronavirus. And so many journalists who, you know, weren't communicating about science before are being recruited to write about science because I mean, it it really is the most important thing right now. Um, And it's, it's everywhere. And and not only just writing about the coronavirus as sort of a a biology topic, but there's so much social science to be writing about right now, about how to, um, you know, how to, to get through this very difficult time, or how to talk to your friends who won't wear masks, or your family members who won't wear masks, or there's just there's so much that is kind of it's centered around the coronavirus, but offshoots from there in all different areas of science, it's just everywhere.
2: Our editorial board will 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 say, of course, you know, this is the biggest story of a science journalist's life career. And I don't know if there's going to be a bigger one anytime soon. And as you note, it is, there are so many levels to it. There's so many dimensions to it. It brings up social science. You have a piece in our next issue, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, um, dealing with the stress of the pandemic and and tactics to deal with that. And, you know, which, which leads me to, you know, The role of science journalism right now is certainly to communicate important information about where society is going, certainly to dispel myths around things like vaccines, but um, it also is to provide guidance in, in, in so many ways with an eye toward what we know is true, what has been tested. And that to me is the hallmark of science journalism as it is separated from from other other fields of journalism um, is what is the role of a science journalist now? Has it changed? What will it be like in in the next six months in in the next few years as we certainly prepare for other pandemics where we certainly prepare for just a larger conversation of the interconnectedness of our planet and global health, and perhaps again. We have an administration that is embracing the threats of climate change and promising action. Will science journalism's role in our life change because of the forces at play today?
0: I think so. I, I can certainly say my job has changed a lot in the last year in terms of the types of stories that I'm writing and the, the kind of information that I think audiences are looking for. So I think a lot in the past, I would write a lot of stories about, you know, a new, a new, um, trend or discovery in science or a new study that's interesting. And, um, and those are still around, but I feel like I am now much more, um, analyzing information and sort of filtering and analyzing and contextualizing science, science for the public right now. Um, there's so much information out there. A lot of it is not good information that we're getting about the coronavirus, about other things happening. And so I am finding, I, I, I will be you know analyzing and you know, what does this mean? What does it not mean? There's a lot of, what do we not know right now that I feel like I'm writing about too? Cause there's, there's, there's plenty that we're learning and every day it's evolving, but yes, it's, there's so much we just don't know right now too. And that's really important to explain to the public and also sort of explaining, you know, why everything's changing. And I I think that's been very important to sort of communicate that science evolves and scientific consensus can evolve in something like a pandemic. Um, So it's, it's a lot of putting things into context um, and a lot of, of, using my understanding of science and, uh, to digest the new information and say, okay, here's, here's what's most important for you right now to know. Um, and, and a lot of what I call service journalism too. So service journalism is essentially giving people advice, um, based on for me, based on science and what experts are saying. So, um, I do this a lot, for instance, with, with, uh, parenting writing right now. So answering questions that parents might have, you know, is it safe for my kids to have playdates? Is it, you know, are schools safe? And what can I do to really, you know, protect my kids and to help them if they're depressed? So there's a lot more need, I think, for this kind of service journalism to say, okay, what do I do now? Or what do I do when I face the situation that I have never faced before? Because we've never been in a
2: situation like this. It's like, it's like an advice column based on science, based on sound science. The issue is the science is changing daily. And sometimes my theory is that the public becomes skeptical because of that change. And part of your job in some ways is kind of uh, meta communicating around just the very process of science. With new information comes new recommendations. You also mentioned the fact that there's so many sources of information. And that's, again... It's a great thing. You can talk about the era of digital media and social media, um, giving a voice to people that may not have had a voice in the past. And certainly there are outlets for which give jobs to freelance science writers. That's a, that's a good thing. But would you agree the flip side of that, though, is there are so many entities, so many media brands. I mean, I like to think We have a 175-year-old media property that I look after. It's commercial pursuits. And um, we take very seriously what we publish and the editorial standards. There are other entities that that may not. um, You know, is just the diversity of information sources. Let's forget social media and kind of conspiracy theories, but I do want to touch upon that. But just the sheer amount of channels we have to get scientific information does that create a challenge for people?
0: I think it absolutely does. I mean, just yesterday, my mom emailed me saying, what is this science website that a friend recommended to me? I have no idea. Can I trust it? Can I not? And I mean, thankfully, she has a daughter who kind of knows the landscape. um, But it's really hard to tell. And some sources of science information really, you know, really aren't credible, but they are very good at putting polish on and making it look as if they are and presenting themselves as sort of almost unbiased news sources when they're clearly not. So it's very, very hard to tell. And that's why I think, um, you know, magazines like Scientific American are so important right now because they are these anchors that people can you know trust in this mess, and this confusion and say, well, at least I can go, you know, to my trusted news site and, and know that, that I'm getting information that I can trust. But um, there's, and there's so many, I feel like every day there's new, new sources of information popping up, new sites, new um, pop-ups, you know, I don't know what you
2: call them. I mean, speaking as up when my publisher had on, there's just, there's so many and it, options to, to be a publisher. I mean, in the old days, the barriers, the, the bar to entry was pretty high. You had to support, you know, the, the, the development of content, Pay writers produce something. Um, you know, nowadays, you 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 flip on a, you flip on your computer. You can start your website, as you say. You can make it look very credible. So so media literacy is very important. Knowing what sources to trust. You know, my wife is a librarian. It's a big part of education. Um, being able to. In the old days, it was finding sources of information. Now it's about vetting sources of information. I have been in the science media uh, world for much of my career. I've been the, sci- the publisher of Scientific American since 2015. Before that, I developed, you know, kind of partnership media programs for us. Um, I left Scientific American and came back. But years ago, I, you know, I was a, a young man opening letters at Scientific American. And I'll tell you, before the era of social media, you had these you know, individuals who we would call conspiracy theorists writing long-form handwritten letters and sending them in. And One of my first jobs in my new career of science publishing at the time was to open these letters and, and route them accordingly within the organization. I developed a folder, which I lovingly called the Wacko folder, and... Um, it were, they, they were handwritten letters from individuals, some of whom thought the moon landing was faked, and they had evidence to, to prove that. Some of them were convinced that pharmaceutical companies had the cure for cancer and Alzheimer's and aren't telling us. Um, a lot of them were, were, were claiming, again, you know, evolution is a big hoax. It was also nice because you know, the handwriting told you a lot about the writer. And nowadays you can't necessarily tell you know someone's mood or or maybe state of mind from handwriting. But what was interesting, you know, this was a letter that came to one person, it came to me and I would either send it to the editors, I would send it to somewhere else. It wasn't like this person put this theory out there and then could be shared a million times instantaneously. Um these ideas wouldn't you know Set fire quickly, right uh, have do we have just this amplification chamber that is almost too effective where people that would have anti-scientific ideas can communicate too effectively, too fast, and how do we stop that so that we could have good Science communication—that
0: is the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> and I, I wish I had—I wish I had the answer to that. Um, I mean, yes. So it's really interesting. I interviewed for Scientific American for a piece I wrote a couple of years ago about conspiracy theories. I interviewed researchers who study conspiracy theories and why people have them and, and what makes them flourish and. All of them said to me, you know, we have no evidence actually that there's more conspiracy theories now than there ever have been. It feels like there are more. And maybe that's because we're exposed to them more and it's easier, you know, easy for us to come across them because of social media. But they said, um, yeah, there's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the case there are more. They are being shared more widely. and, and they don't know whether more, you know, a higher percentage of people believe them or not, because apparently they have been common throughout humanity. Um, and they are a sort of natural response to anxiety and fear and feeling disenfranchised, which people have been feeling um, <laughs> recently for good reason. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect there may be more now than there have been maybe than there were 10 years ago it's it's hard to say especially but just because now there's so much angst and there's so much confusion in the world and anxiety and fear um, and these conspiracy theories kind of provide uh, they're almost I mean they, they give you a sense of control because it, they help you explain the world in a way that's simple I mean It's not really, conspiracy theories aren't often that simple, but you can blame someone, right? You can say, oh, you know, the reason the world is so terrible is because of this guy over there, Um, and it's all his fault, and if we just got rid of him, it would all be okay. And that is much easier to swallow than, gosh, things are hard just because things are hard or for random reasons or for things that are, you know, so complex. So they give this sort of reassuring,
2: I don't know, uh, feeling of control. What was interesting about, I mean, I would have loved to have kept that folder and published a book, but you know, do you know what happened to that folder? It was the early days again of, again, in my publishing career. And it was at a, a months later, uh, Ted Kaczynski, otherwise known as the Unabomber, wrote a letter to the New York Times saying that he was sending a manifesto both to them and to Scientific American. And so it was not much, uh, it was soon thereafter And I'd spoken to people about this folder I had. It was entertaining. But uh, the FBI, the FBI was at the offices of Scientific American looking at the mail and requested that anyone that has gotten something, you know, to that effect to, to give them. So I gave that folder to the FBI. I wasn't able to make photocopies of it. But again, it was just telling in those days that, um, it was a person-to-person interaction. And now everything is out in the public. In fact, every, every brand you interact with is in some ways a publisher. They're a constant stream of information. You know, when, when I first saw on a box of waffles, the waffle company saying, follow us on Facebook, you know, like us on whatever. It, it, it occurred to me, okay, wow. I, every, every entity is a publisher. I don't know what source of content you want every day from your waffle company or your cereal company, you know, perhaps waffle related information. <laughs> how important is it? And that's the, I think, fundamental question. You know, we like to think that what we do, uh, purveyors of 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 science facts and and vetted stories around how the world works and, and, and its its relationship to what policymakers need to know, um, you know, you think it's important, but people only have a a few minutes to attend to that versus all the other content they may, they may get, they they want to be entertained. They want to see cat videos or whatever else. So is it, is it the world events that just naturally make people realize they're going to need good vetted journalism? Um, For me, I think that might be the case. And I will say that we, our audience has grown, and that's a great thing. Uh you know, I I'm I'm sure it is telling about just the need and, and the desire among the public for you know thoroughly researched scientific information.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um I it's funny, as as a science journalist, I've become uh my friend's um go to source for like any question they have, they text me if it's coronavirus related. And so I I know that there are so many questions out there that people have that they want to find answers to that they can't always find answers to on Google. Um, and I mean, just all sort I mean our lives, every aspect of our lives is affected by this right now. And that means we are going into situations that we've never been in before, and we don't know how to handle them. And if, you know, it would be great if we if we could get those answers through trusted news sources, and I and I think that is one reason why there's so much more service journalism right now happening. Um, and you know, even in, um, I mean, it's Scientific American and also you know the New York Times, Washington Post. There's just so much more because I think there is just this huge now need for answers about science that that you know didn't exist to this degree. Um, and I was going to ask you actually about um, about how the audience has changed because, you know, on the one hand, we've had this very anti-science administration that is now gone. Um, and that might have, you know, hurt the audience for science, but then of course now we have the coronavirus and we have all of, you know, all of the questions that go with that. And so, yeah. Have you seen, you know, um, your readership change in any interesting ways? I'd, I'd be curious.
2: Um, you know, the casual readers, readers that come to the site for one piece, a critical piece, there's there's a lot of those types of interactions. I, and I, I do think that, you know, just you know, when you see subscription rates going up, you realize people, I, I think, are saying, gee, I'm really committed to having a regular stream of quality science journalism, science information in my life. So, you know maybe i can't draw a direct line to to that but the audience has grown i think they would have grown you know, they grew under the trump administration i think as a as a as a reaction saying you know we need to embrace science and now of course yeah. you know w- what president biden seems to have uh made clear is this is going to be a science informed administration and and that's you know a a great thing for all of us um not that there were not people trying to do what they could in the previous administration. And again, which leads me to kind of the role of a science journalist is a little different than the role of a scientist speaking. And I'm just, you know, a question that has come in here uh, from the audience, you know, uh, from, from someone about, you know, scientists are often uncomfortable saying what they do know when there are so many things that they don't know. And I think this question speaks to the heart of, you know, We all know scientists need to communicate better and their organizations are trying to help them. You know, Alan Alda has that initiative with Stony Brook, but scientists can sometimes be kind of bad communicators. One point. And, you know, your role as one of those intermediaries is also to make sure that you, scientists can be biased themselves. And I don't mean biased in a, in a bad way. I mean, sometimes, you know, they're promoting maybe their research or their research institution. So, you know, what is your relationship like with your sources? Which is, in many cases, you know you are interviewing scientists for most of your day, and and they're they're incredibly wise people. But again, they themselves can be biased, and they of course themselves can sometimes be not the best communicators. So, what is a science journalist's role in that case? You, you you have to make them better communicators, but you also have to vet and and kind of make sure you 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 check their perspective on things.
0: Right. It's a complicated relationship, um, for all the reasons that you said. I mean, on the one hand, it's important to connect with sources so that they feel comfortable opening up to me um and to feel that, you know, they can trust me to get the science right to communicate what they're saying accurately. So there has to be this sense of, of trust and um and and connection but on the other hand we can't get too close to our sources either they're not our friends um and you know there's no uh, as you say you know if there's a a scientist who has published something that maybe a lot of other scientists disagree with and you're reporting on it then You need to reflect the consensus in your piece. You know, I'm going to say, well, actually, most people disagree with this finding or or aren't convinced by it or have questions about it. And and so if I had befriended the scientist, you know, if I really felt like um, we had a close relationship and then I had to cover their study, which was being questioned, it would be harder for me to do that. So I have to maintain distance so that I can, to some degree, you know, cover the science and cover their work and cover what they're saying objectively. But it's a really tricky dance. And I mean, no one is unbiased, right, including journalists. And so one of the things that I think we have to do is not, we can't, We can't aim to be unbiased necessarily, but we can be aware of our biases. And I've learned a lot about confirmation bias, which is basically, you know, if you believe an idea, then you're going to seek information that supports it and sort of ignore any information you see that doesn't. And that's a big problem. It can be. I mean, it's a big problem for everybody, but certainly for journalists. So I'm just kind of constantly trying to be aware of that and be aware of how a relationship with a source, if I really like some scientists that I've interviewed a few times, you know, I have to sort of check myself and say, okay, I, I need to be careful here. And I need to make sure. And, and sometimes it's a matter of just seeking more voices. So if I make sure that I'm not just interviewing a source that I happen to have interviewed before and enjoyed talking with, but other people too, who will give me diverse perspectives and make sure that what I'm what i'm writing really reflects a consensus um
2: but yeah it's hard how do you deal with you know um the equal time issue which again comes up even among the public and they say well you know we need to make sure we hear opposing voices and certainly the whole idea of the entity that is the you know science is about let's hear all the voices and 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 make sure we scrutinize and interrogate and see which 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 leads us to to the fact or the you know the, the the state of the world um you know the the issue is i guess if you're covering politics yes you you seek out different viewpoints if you're covering science equal time is a whole different animal in the world of science journalism and i want to i'm going to paraphrase bill moyers but he 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 kind of jokingly he, he skewered the equal time uh, uh, concept by saying, you know, here's, we're going to have a half hour talking to Mother Teresa, then we're going to give a half hour to Mussolini. And, and you know, there are just, it, it, it's an absurd thing. I mean, to me, it would seem that in covering a story, you know, you, you, you want to give weight to opposing voices, but that weight should be commensurate with the number of and credibility of scientists that hold that viewpoint. And if you're covering something like an emerging story, emerging science, where there's not a huge consensus, you know, how do you deal with that? Because that's certainly in the public's mind. They want to see. Well, if you're going to talk about climate change, you got to you got to bring out a guy who you know denies it. I mean, that's just not true. It's absolutely not true. And and, and so, you know, how how do you deal with that day to day as a journalist that connects with a pretty wide public?
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. I completely agree with you and everything you just said that. Um, uh i mean what you really want to be reflecting in your writing as a science journalist is the scientific consensus wherever that lies and and that's where you want to give your weight so i know false th- this idea is sometimes called false balance or false equivalency where you're you're giving equal weight to um maybe two sides of a scientific issue where there's not equal weight in terms of consensus right so it used to be a really big problem with um vaccine coverage um so you know uh newspapers or magazines would publish stories where they would have you know two doctors saying childhood vaccines are safe and you know please vaccinate your kids and then two parents who said i think vaccines are dangerous and i don't give them to my kids and you have this sense of false equivalency here because obviously we know where this where the consensus lies with with emerging science and in a an, in a pandemic it is hard um And I find sometimes I just have to seek out more, more sources and more voices to understand really where the consensus is, because there can, and sometimes there just is disagreement and and we don't know enough about something and we, and we don't, we just haven't learned enough. So, so the story ends up being about the fact that we don't know. And I think sometimes, um, that's something I remember learning when I first was starting to actually, when I was in journalism school for science journalism, um, that there are a lot of different kinds of stories you can write. And I think we're, initially we think, well, we have to write a story that has a very clear, you know, argument and a very clear answer to it. And that's what we have to do. It has to have this just one, you know, yes or no sort of um, uh, angle. And and that's not true. You can write very nuanced stories. And and I think that audiences actually really appreciate nuance, um, especially, you know, readers of Scientific American. And and you can really get into the reasons that there's not an answer yet or a clear answer yet. And, And, you know, why is this so hard to study? And why is there this disagreement? And that's actually sometimes the most interesting to me, parts of science, I'm very attracted to the um the gnarly like, issues where we do have you know disagreement and and I like thinking about you know why is that is there bias involved is there just is the science hard to conduct and sort of teasing out the reasons for the confusion i think that's really fun i don't know i may have gone
2: off on a little tangent there but not only not only is it a relevant tangent one of the questions that came in is you know can we define science and of course it is a process of not you know always questioning always improving you know the two the, what I would consider I guess the two pillars of, of science. You know, peer review, reproducibility, and 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 you know uh, I know a lot. of, There are a lot of people that feel like the, the first one's not not as much actually the, the, the most important, but the idea of reproducibility, the idea of, of of being able to interrogate the way the world works, interrogate nature, and 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 and, and say this is you know we know this and we and, and other people have independently reproduce the results of our findings. And, you know, is the is the the problem of reproducibility seems to come up too. Again, this is possibly maybe an inside baseball topic among science journalists, but um it does get to the heart of of the credibility of sources and how you can interrogate something and say, you know what, we don't know. There there are nuances to this and and, and you know, there are sometimes not answers, like the, you know, quest for Amyloid, uh, you know the, the amyloid hypothesis and Alzheimer's, and you know um, failed clinical trials for for thirty years. How would you define this process? I mean, and, and can you help the public understand the kind of messy process of science as part of what you do as a science journalist?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really good question and a hard one. I mean, I when I think about science and what it does. I think about it broadly as kind of the the best process. It's not perfect, but the best process we have at whittling away towards the truth about something. It is completely imperfect. It is conducted by scientists who are humans who are imperfect and biased. Um, and, and so it is very wobbly and it's very messy. Um, but over time, as something continues to be studied and, 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 and sometimes you need with, for instance, the amyloid hypothesis. I, I think there was a lot of confirmation bias in there um, that led to researchers continuing to go down this path that was not fruitful, even though the research kept showing it wasn't fruitful, but they were like, no, no, it, it has to be true. Right. Um, eventually, I, you know, I think now we have, scientists have started to look at other answers, right? Because and I think some of that, too, is you need a new generation of scientists sometimes to come in and look at the same problem with a different perspective and not sort of be entrenched in the power dynamics and the and, and just all of the issues that might be an issue might be caught up with. Um, so sometimes it's a very slow process and it goes the wrong direction for a long time and then turns around. Uh, but I mean, I think in 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 most cases, um Oh, I don't know where I'm where I'm going with that, but I, I I see it as really the best way for us to get answers about the world, and and um, as
2: imperfect as it is, it is yeah.
0: it's what we have. It's imperfect,
2: and as you say, I mean, there's 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 bias that happens, um, and that bias can happen in different ways. I mean, there's just your classic: someone's being, you know, paid to to you know. To, to support research, and so they you know that there's the the conflict of interest kind of thing but you know just the the bias inherent even in just science journalism you know we we need to be careful as a you know, a magazine that's a for profit entity right a media brand that, that 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 takes you know advertising that actually makes money on on selling content you got you have to be careful with how does that affect your your approach to communicating the science do you you know You see yourself with a huge competitive set now that everyone can be a publisher. So do you make your headlines more clickbaity? Do you, you know, try to introduce some wow and pizzazz? And I think all publishers and all, all content should be fun to read, a good experience, but they have to be rigorous. So that also, you know, comes into play, just the very structure of the content you produce. If it, there is financial gain in, in, in keeping an audience as a journalist. I mean, do you have to worry? You know, you, 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 certainly, you know, you're a contributing editor, but you also work with editors when you do pieces for the New York times or slate, you know um, how do you need to balance that when it comes to making sure you're not full of hype and, 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 and not overstating something.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's I think it's really important to be skeptical <laughs> as a science journalist of everything, um, of not just the exciting new findings that, you know, could change the world, but also of the of the, you know, naysayers who say something isn't all that it's claimed to be. You have to be skeptical of everything sort of equally. I mean, it's it's really, really, really hard to do. Um, I mean, I feel like I at least don't think about or have to worry about, you know, whether this article I'm writing is going to I obviously want my my pieces to be read, but I I am not driven by, oh, I you know, I want a million people to read this particular article. Um I tend to be, you know, driven by the just the, the questions are interesting to me and I think therefore they're going to be interesting to some other people, but I I don't have to I don't feel like I have to make it interesting to everybody. So, um so I'm often just sort of pursuing what, you know, what I feel like in my sort of science instincts is interesting and important. And I don't worry about, well, how, wide you know, how widely read is this going to be? Cause I'm going to get paid. I don't get paid by clicks, which I'm very happy about because that would make, I mean, that would just change everything and that would make my life so much harder. And it would just make those decisions so much more difficult. Right. So I am getting paid for a particular project that I report and write. And I obviously want it to be, I mean, what is important is that I write something that is, um, you know, accurate and really reflects the science, because then if I don't, I'm not going to be asked to write other pieces. I'm a freelancer. So, um, you know, nobody has to keep assigning me stories. They only assign me stories because they think I'm a good science writer and I, you know, do due diligence with stories. So I do have to be careful about that, but I don't worry about, you know, how many people are going to read this, and how do I, you know, what, do I need
2: to hype it more to make it more exciting? Um, in a way, yeah. I'm glad to hear that, I'm glad, <laughs> and I'm glad you're not paid for clicks because there's a lot of entities that that do that. It does corrupt, and, and again, it's just a battle of who has the crazier headline, and it's just a system that you know eventually will collapse on itself. And I think we've seen a little bit of that with 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 what just happened in 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 the country. You you elevate. Points of view and everyone tries to be crazier and and have a you know more shocking headline. It it it, it does play into this.
0: Thankfully, writers, um, this is something that not a lot of people know. We don't have we don't write our headlines. Um, we are sometimes encouraged to suggest them. They almost always get changed. Uh, I often get shown a headline to make sure you know an editor will say, "Is this?" inaccurate and and I can say, I will often push back and say yes, I think that's hyping too much, but um, whenever you see a headline and it makes you mad that it doesn't reflect what's in the article, just don 't blame the writer <laughs> because it's usually it's usually not us that is
2: a great thing. a lot of people don't do not realize that, and um, you see you see what what could be irresponsible headlines um, many times and, and yeah. good good media entities are all sometimes you know uh, uh, you know Guilty of it. Uh, one of the questions that has come in here, um, interesting, well, goes, goes to the heart of what you were saying about you know the administration, you know, scientists communicating their work. Why are scientists so bad at communicating with the public? And maybe you know, I don't know if they're all bad. Um, and sometimes you know, it's through the filter of the, their handlers. Should science? Should scientific education change so that scientists are capable of engaging? With the public directly? Now it's an interesting question. You know, uh, um, of course we all are aware of the issues with Fauci and the friction between former president Trump. <laughs> you know, scientists in general, I think it's great when they engage with the public. You know, you as a journalist need to engage with, with scientists too, and, and certainly their resources. You know. well, should how, how much should scientists engage more and how, how could, what what would that ecosystem look like to dispel some of the myths around, again, the process of science itself um, and the public's understanding of the nuances of it?
0: Yeah, it's a difficult question. I have, I have a bunch of different thoughts in response to that. I mean, um, one thought I have is I, I first of all, not all scientists are bad communicators. Um, there are a lot of really great communicators. And some scientists are wonderful writers, uh, um, not just communicators, you know, vocally, but but writers as well. Um, but I think it can be hard. I mean, if you think about the role of a scientist and what their job is, and I mean, they're really in the weeds in their work and in their field. And in order to communicate science, sometimes you, you have to be able to really step back. And you have to be able to understand what your audience knows and doesn't know and it it's i think if you're really deeply in it like scientists are that can be a very very difficult to do um i'm not saying it's not a skill that they can't learn but it it's just it's i think it's it takes a lot um i do know though i, I think it's great when scientists do engage directly with the public there are some websites like the conversation um, which I don't know if, um, you know, but it, it's great. So it's a website that's, um, that encourages scientists to write kind of articles, um, and they're great and they have links to their research in it and they'll, um, and then they're answering really relevant questions. They're, I think they, I mean, I think they're great and they're, um, they must, I think they have editors too. So, so the editors help the scientists write more clearly, but, um, I think it's great when scientists communicate directly to the public, but I think there will always be the need for science journalists, because, I mean, for one thing, we have to have that distance in order to report on science and the problems in science. um, You know, scientists can't always do that. Um, And and because it is it can be very hard to step out of those weeds and really have the perspective that you can have. If you're a science journalist, sometimes coming in and learning about a topic, you know, having started from the point of not knowing anything and then learn things, you can more easily step back out to, okay, now I can kind of figure out how to explain this to a public that doesn't know it. Cause I didn't know it three months ago, you know? Um, so yeah.
2: I, I, <laughs> For the record, I was only reading the question about scientists being bad at communicating. I'm, yeah. Some <laughs> wonderful science communicators that are scientists you look at you know Oliver Sacks and they're just you know amazing writers communicators but it, going back to the point made earlier we are living in a time where it is so essential to get you know almost in real time comments from scientists um the most up to date information we are entering this period where of course you know We've got these vaccine vaccines are out there, more are coming, which which you know is, is, is amazing. But um it is going to be critical for the scientists themselves to communicate with the public. It's gonna be critical for policymakers to be informed by the best science and, and, and you know the best clear science. And of course, there is the public, you know. There, there, there's, there's always been this skepticism around vaccines and, and not always, but, you know, certainly it's been amplified is what kind of, what is the dynamic going to be like in the next few months? And, and again, going back to the role of a science journalist, just like people have said, you know, the, the media has a responsibility to call out lies of a president, you know, going, you know, the conspiracy theorists that, that I, got letters from years ago. I mean, you had the president of the United States screaming conspiracy theories. Do science journalists, do people that are seeking to tell the public the truth, do they have to even step up in a bigger way to, again, assure them of the safety of the vaccine, um, clarify... The pros and cons, or maybe the risks of say you know opening schools, I just feel like in every sphere right now, we need to hear from the scientist, and if there is a complexity and nuance to it, for a science journalist to help you know make sense of the landscape.
0: I completely agree, but it's so hard right now because as is true for everybody right now you know science journalists also don't have as much work time as they used to a lot of them um you know anybody who I've got two kids I hope that you can't hear them right now <laughs> i think they're eating dinner but um you know my work days are cut a lot shorter than they used to be so you have this need for more journalism and more communication, the scientists too. I mean, they, I've had so many Zoom calls with scientists with their kids in the background (laughs) and, and, or them saying, I'm sorry, you know, I'm on duty for the next three days with my kids. I can't talk to you. So there's so much more to be said and so much communication that needs to happen, but there's so much strain, there's so much less time um, to do that in. So it's this very difficult situation. Um, But I mean, yes. And, and it's, and some of this is very difficult communication. Just you mentioned vaccines, for instance. Um, there is, interestingly, research on how to communicate about vaccines to appease vaccine hesitant people. And it's complicated research, but it's very important research and i mean one thing that science journalists can bring to the table if they are familiar with this research which um you know some of us are is we can then use that research to help us write better articles about the vaccines and how you talk about I mean, how you talk about uncertainty is important is important and and not every there's there's been some interesting um disagreements on social media about pieces that have come out talking about vaccines, saying, I'm not sure this is the best way they should have explained this. Or, um, I mean, one, so one thing I'll say is that the research shows that, um, it is really important for for journalists to be transparent and honest about what we know about vaccines and what we don't. And that kind of trying to oversell or say, oh, you know, there's no risks or there's no side effects, that can that can backfire big time um, because really what you're trying to do, you want to again build trust with the reader. And if you say something that maybe isn't totally true because you're trying to get people to take the vaccine, that will come back to bite you because they'll say, Well, see, we can't we can't trust you. You didn't tell us the whole truth so it it is really important to to be to take care in how you communicate but also be very transparent and be very
2: honest. like science is a self-correcting process although it sounds like so so is science journalism yeah using yes. these tactics to then better inform the public better connect and better you know build credibility i will say you know uh, just like there's bias everywhere You 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 Science is not free of politics. In, in an ideal world, it would be. But if you know, science questions the status quo, there's always going to be someone or some group who has an interest in the status quo. And by the very nature of questioning it, it's going to threaten someone's position, their power, their economic place, right? Um, you did a story for us a few years ago, which is still one of the best pieces of science journalism I've ever read. And it was your story about guns and the the premise being that the science would clearly show more guns doesn't actually mean you know more safety in in fact the opposite and we you know we got a lot of letters about that, and I'm just curious you know in researching that um and you i think went to your hometown or or uh you know um how did you find the it wasn't like you were trying to take a political stance, you were trying to get to the truth. You were trying to follow the science as you always do, as you will, as you do in your new book. What, what, what was the challenge there with just the, the inherent kind of political, you know, hot buttons in that story?
0: Yeah, that was such an interesting story because um, it came just from the question. So a lot of times when you're when you're a science journalist and you're trying to convince editors to give you an assignment you have to have an angle that you're you've already reported and you say so i've talked to all these people and and they've told me this and i'm going to i'm going to argue this you know or i'm going to explain this and and you kind of already know what the story is because you've done this pre-reporting when that idea came to me it came to me from my editor at scientific american and he said we just have this question and we don't actually know the answer and the question is do more guns in people's homes you know and or guns that they might carry um, with them on their bodies do those keep people safe or do they make people more unsafe and they said you know we, we we don't really know what the research says we we suspect it could be that guns don't actually keep people safe but we want you to answer it and i remember saying okay well i don't know the answer myself right now but i just want to make sure that if i do find guns do keep people safe that that's going to be okay. And you know, that, that you don't have, you know, you haven't already decided what the story is. I just want to double check. And I, I mean, I know my editors and they're very careful and I, uh, but I just wanted to make sure. Right. And I said, cause I don't know the answer and I don't know what it's going to tell me, but I want to know that you really want the answer, no matter what it is. And they said, yes, we want this no matter what the answer is. And so then I just dug in. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was quite an intense process, of reading basically all of the literature I could find, you know, some of it's 40 years old, well, 30 years old. Um, and really just, and talking to everybody I could talk to. Um, and yes, it was a very political topic. I was nervous. I, I, I was, um, I remember I was trying to take my information off the internet before the piece went up because I thought people might, you know, try to come find me. And you know, I, I was scared. Um, and it, the science was clear. I mean, I, it was very clear that more guns do not keep people safe. And it's clear in a number of ways that you sort of ask that question. Um, and so I felt good in the end. I mean, I just did so much reporting and talked to so many people. And yes, there were a few people who had different opinions, but I'd looked at their research very carefully and was not convinced that their research was particularly sound. And, um, and so I felt, I felt very good. I felt like it was a scientific answer that I was giving and not yeah. a political one.
2: And that's, that's the heart again of, of science journalism, you know, topics that again are just you know, by their very nature have become po- political, um, tackling them through the lens of science, just really one of the most you know important aspects of what you do. I know that piece got, you know, uh, tweeted out by policymakers, um, mm-hmm. I believe a few senators, and you know it speaks to the heart of the importance back to this communicating science to a sometimes science skeptical or sometimes just you know unaware of of of, of what that process is. Policymakers are going to need more pieces like what you wrote. You know um, when you think about everything. That will govern our society, everything that drives, you know, from the safety of, of, of legalizing marijuana uh, to to what is in our food to certainly uh, uh, I, what I hope is a renewed discussion around the threats you know, of climate change, which, you know, ironically, uh, you know, th- those that would say, oh, it's not as much of a threat. And it turns out it's actually more of a threat than even the people that were giving us the most dire warnings were saying. And 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 so um, I know you are prepared to step up your game in, in the next few years, but it's going to be those pieces like that, that will, you, you go into it with a, an open mind and, and, and you follow the data. Um, that is going to be ever more important both for the near future and 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 the devastating situation that we find ourselves in four hundred thousand plus uh death toll in just the u s from this pandemic to um again you know other other global health issues that will become you know relevant in the years to come, so you know um it is a, such a a, a noble Role to take on, you know what what you do, and certainly we were proud to publish you know, that piece. And I'm, I'm hoping you got more love mail than hate mail about it.
0: <laughs> I did, I did, and I, you know, I had some very interesting um, conversations about it too. I'm thinking of there was an AM radio show that asked me to come on for an hour, an hour and a half, or something at midnight one night, and it was a very, it was kind of a pro gun. <laughs> radio show. And I said, yes. And we actually had a really constructive conversation. It was, it was really interesting. Um, And, and so, you know, moments like that, I, I was, I was, you know, I felt like, okay, the world's a, a good place and, and people can communicate even if they're you know, they have different takes on different issues. And that was that was a really nice moment. I'd love you know. to
2: hear I'd love to hear the audio of that, because, you know, um <laughs> again, in the spirit of what we hope President Biden, you know, uh, um, his, the gauntlet he threw down in his opening yeah. speech today was a, about unity and engaging with people that you don't agree with. And again, he I think he used the term within the guardrails of of, of, of you know, American democracy it's okay to disagree. And even if there were people that might have a different viewpoint that can listen to what the science shows, reach a consensus in, in, in some way that to me is one of the goals of what we do as communicators of science. I agree. Yeah. Um, and
0: uh, yeah, I found his, I found his speech um, moving and so important today and, and, you know, just, Because we were speaking about conspiracy theories, I do think you know if you're in a in a situation in which you're trying to talk to somebody who has a very different opinion, one of the things that the research suggests is is you know empathy really helps and listening and just acknowledging, even if you know if, if somebody is saying something that you don't disagree with, there's probably something underlying it there that's a real fear or a real concern that once you acknowledge that can help you connect with that person. And then they're more willing to listen to your side too. You know, it's like, again, making these connections is so important. It's important in journalism. It's important in real life when you're just having conversations with people who have different, different ideas from you, different beliefs from you.
2: Uh, I couldn't agree more. We can, if we can showcase, if we can highlight the the common humanity and offer up dignity as human beings, when we have any discussion around um, what our future holds you know, science is what drives, you know, drives prosperity, it drives, it drives uh, how we work, live, play. Um When, when done right, it it is, it is, it is, you know, kind of the, the arc of, of, of innovation is toward, toward equity, toward all of us, you know, benefiting from that. So um it's an important conversation. It's certainly a, a like, you know, like you, you noted a self-correcting process. And, and I hope um something that is, You know, spotlighted in in the in the in the on the public's radar, front and center in in the years to come. You know, with that, I know I know Robert wants to make some closing comments, but um, I feel very heartened by this conversation. I thank you, Melinda, for what you do with Scientific American and all the other things that you do. I can't wait to read your book. I haven't read it yet. (laughs) Uh, um, We'll be sending it to all my
1: friends. And there is Dr. Kilpatrick on screen doctor yes and he's he's got his own copy of scientific american to hand 175 years of publishing you know i'm a subscriber and i really enjoy um reading the magazine and uh i also enjoy reading your work uh, melinda so look i thank both of you uh, jeremy and melinda for uh an illuminating uh talk today certainly uh i've got a lot of questions in mind and ideas um and i may even email them to you I also wanna thank our audience today for for tuning in. Um, you know, for 117 years, the Commonwealth Club of California has provided a forum like today, open to all for the impartial discussion of public issues important to our membership, our community and our nation. And I cannot think of a public asset more valuable at this time in history than the Commonwealth Club with an ethos such as that. But now that we're offering a digital programming, we also have a global audience. Our two speakers are not based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And in the past, of course, speakers had to be in the clubhouse and audiences had to be in the clubhouse. So I think we are also breaking new ground in terms of cultivating a global audience and stimulating global conversation alongside Scientific American. I invite all of you to become members of the Commonwealth Club if you're not already a member. It's as inexpensive as $10 a month, and that gives you free access to many of the programs. If you are already a member, I thank you. And with that, I say good night.
2: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.